Hello and welcome to the Sports Law Podcast with Nick DiMarco QC of Blackstone Chambers. I'm Nick DiMarco, a leading sports barrister and author of the book Football and the Law. In the Sports Law Podcast, I talk to leading personalities in sport to share their experiences and discuss topical legal issues around the law in sport. In the first few episodes, we shall be following the broad structure of the forthcoming second edition of Football and the Law, which will be published in autumn of this year. The book starts with an introduction discussing the existence and growth of football law. In this edition, we are joined by Ben Mansford, the Chief Executive of Blackpool Football Club, Lloyd Thomas, General Counsel at Brighton and Hove Albion, Liz Coley, a sports solicitor at Level Law, and both Peter Limbert and Rebecca Todd, General Counsel and in-house lawyer at Fulham Football Club. Well, welcome to all of our guests. Chapter one of our book, Football and the Law, argues that there is such a thing as football law. But what I want to focus on today is what do football lawyers actually do? What's the typical life of a football lawyer? And so we're going to ask each of our guests to describe a typical week in their life as a football lawyer to reflect back on how each of them ended up in the role that they currently have and finally to discuss some of the important legal issues likely to arise in the future in football. So if I can start with you, Lloyd, first of all, can you tell us how a typical week works for you as General Counsel at Brighton and Hove Albion? I think probably everyone here will agree that there's not really any sort of typical week because it's just generally um, dealing with what comes in that week um, or that day, your your kind of to-do list can quickly go out the window. Um, but I suppose as a sort of starting point, you are the first point of contact for anyone in the football club who needs or wants some legal advice. So that could be the chairman or um, a director or the chief executive, or it could be someone who's just fresh out of university or starting a role and has never engaged with a lawyer before. So that ranges across the whole sort of uh, ambit of the, the issues that the club deals with. Um, but it also means that the advice that you give and to how you give it and to those people will change as well. Um, I think as a result, the the areas of law that you advise on or the areas of risk or whatever it is you're being asked to advise on are very varied. Um, you might find yourself jumping from doing a transfer agreement into a commercial agreement to giving some regulatory advice to some employment advice and it completely changes. But for me, that is the joy of it. Um, I think the ability to work on so many different things and not to be siloed into one area, I think is just such a privilege. Um, and I think from that perspective as well, there aren't a huge number of people who work at football clubs who get the visibility and eyeline that a lawyer does. Um, you're working across every single area of the club, which is just is great, really interesting. Um, and it's demanding, but in, in the best possible way. Um, but I would say that against that kind of chaos of not knowing what's going to happen necessarily on a day-to-day -day basis, football's a slightly unusual uh, industry in which to work in the sense that it's seasonal and cyclical. So there will be certain points of reference in the year where you know that uh, you've got your windows, you know that you've got the period of time where um, ticketing might go on for renewals or you're starting to draft pre-season participation agreements. So you've got those points of reference that when you've worked in football for clubs for a number of years, you know, okay, right, here's where we are. 
And so they kind of provide an overarching structure against which you deal with the sort of the day-to-day -day madness, basically. And, and some clubs, Lloyd, have huge teams of lawyer. I think Manchester City has 25 now in-house. Um, uh, I think you're the only one at Brighton, is that right? Uh, How's got, that different? I've just got an assistant now as well, oh. so there's two of us. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, I was previously at Arsenal, but I think there was, across the time I was there, sort of eight, nine or ten lawyers at any one time. So obviously when you've got more resource, it's helpful. <laughs> but I think when you're um, by yourself or just a couple of you, I think you really need to sort of focus in on uh, what are the key issues, what's most important. I think that exercise of... Uh, working out what's most important and what's most urgent um, is really important but also I think just communication letting people know what you're dealing with what the urgent priorities are across the business so everyone knows that you're not just ignoring them basically. Um, Rebecca you're um, at Fulham who obviously are now a Premier League club or will be in a few days from when we're recording um, is there a you were in at, in the championship is there a difference or How's, how's your week compared to, to what Lloyd said? I think, um, to be honest, just to piggyback off Lloyd said, it's pretty much the same in terms of we deal with the same departments, we provide the same advice across different um, areas of law. But I think for us, what will be different this year um, compared to the championship is the week leading up to transfer deadline day and probably actually well, from now until transfer deadline day, because we're going to have to manage sponsorship deals while also incoming and outgoing football transfers. And this, the week leading up to the transfer deadline day is very important because we'll have to manage the sponsorship deal to get revenue in so that they can give the assets at the start of the season, while also drafting um, player contracts for football deals that are in the early stages and might not happen all so that we can get prepared for um, the finale, which is obviously the deadline day, to make sure that we have the best setup for the Premier League season in order to stay up next year. And, and do you think that a, a Premier League team needs more lawyers than a championship team or, or, or are the issues really the same? I think that um, in the Premier League, the issues are more high profile, as in because the Premier League is obviously a worldwide, um, every, everybody across the world watches it. I'm not saying that the championship isn't like that, but I think that there is more risk in terms of publicity than in um, the championship. And so I think that in the Premier League, you probably need more lawyers in order to manage that. And also the demand on the department's higher because, um, so for example, sponsorship, they want more deals because, you know, they can sell more and more companies are interested in becoming even just an LED partner. And the same with um, football transfers, the football players, they become um, worth more and same across marketing and I guess, every department really. Okay, thanks. And Ben, you started as a lawyer, but for many years you've been a chief executive, now at Blackpool. Is, is there a big difference in the work you do? What What's a typical week look like for you? Yeah, I think, as Lloyd said, typical week, um, that just doesn't exist in football, and that's why we love it. You know, I think when you 
come into football, um, I, I'm as a chief executive, I'm one of these annoying types that likes to interview everyone from the apprentice groundsman to to the head coach because you're building a culture and environment. And when you give yourself to a role in football, you kind of you, you, football has its own way of life. It, it's an adrenaline sort of filled uh, environment, and uh, and it is very much twenty four seven. I think as a chief exec, you have two real key roles. One is to manage the owner. The other is to manage the head coach. And if you can keep on the same line um, uh, and, and build a culture and an environment and recruit good people, then you've got a chance. Obviously, we've been one year in the championship. I've been two and a bit years back in Blackpool. Um, we inherited a club um, five years uh, after a boycott. Um, and all that came with the toxicity of the former owner. So it was for the first three to six months in-house lawyer hat on. Um, a lot of what the guys have described, you know, employment agreements, transfer agreements, regulatory issues. Um, we've just acquired a site for a new £20 million-ish uh, training uh, ground. And we've also looked uh, and acquired some levelling up fund funding to redevelop our east stand, which again could be could see the owner invest somewhere between 30 and 40 million. I was not a property lawyer uh, when I trained in private practice. Um, I managed to do one four-month seat in it and get the hell out of there. And I'm sure everybody around the room uh, might have similar views to property and tax law. I think one thing I have noticed, Nick, though, having been back in the championship. Um, since a sort of four-year absence, three years spent in Tel Aviv and working there in a, in a year uh, in League One with Blackpool is just how litigious the championship's been. When I started at, at, at Barnsley as a chief exec at 33, that was 2013. Um, and, you know, I understand the EFL's legal bills was about three to 400,000. After the recent, you know, Sheffield Wednesday derby in particular, the Football League's bill is allegedly now something in the region of £5 million. That's per season, is it? Yes, that's what I understand, but, but other people much closer to the EFL may or may not want to comment on that. What I also think is very interesting um, is that this year we've been threat with, threatened with legal action twice. Um, once when we were running into a game where we had a number of COVID um, absentees, there was, was, you know, Peter will know there was rules that we all had to uh, work to. And uh, we thought we had less than the players required. So we asked for the game to be called off. Our opposition that day wanted to play us because we were weak and they were strong. And they threatened us with legal action if we didn't play. I just find that a real change. And, and I think what that meant is, you know, as chief exec in a small club like Blackpool with no in-house re resource, obviously I'm naturally pulled into all of that things. We had another situation where we were asked to play on a Friday at the end of an international break on Sky. We were happy to do that because for Blackpool to be on Sky, that's wonderful. And the other team that were chasing promotion also had players away, which we did, and, and they were threatening legal action against the league if they made them play on the Friday, not the Saturday. So... I think now we are drawn in as, as senior execs and, and legal um, types to, to quite a lot more club v club, league v league. And, and I think that's becoming more typical and I think that's really sad and, and that needs uh, addressing. Sad for you, but maybe good for some of us lawyers. Uh, but Nick, we, we know you well. Uh, we know you well at Blackpool. Um, but I think other things that have been interesting, obviously last week we had the first... Um, you know, Jake Daniels. Yes. Um, 
came out as the first openly gay footballer for nearly 30 years that's, that's currently playing. And you start getting into, you know, social media, hate crime. You then have, you know, social services, the police involved. And, and also we had a very challenging situation um, where one of our players was accused of rape um, a year or so ago. So I think typical no, challenging yes, and um, mainly hopefully enjoyable. Liz, you have a vast experience because you've been a club secretary at first for many different clubs at, I think, both Premier League and Championship level, uh, then private practice. And now I, I, your, your area is virtually all football. Is that right in private practice? What's yeah, your that's... week's typical week often look like? Again, reiterating what Lloyd and everyone else has said, really. Um, I don't think there's such thing as a typical week. As, as Lloyd mentioned... Football is cyclical, so the same issues turn up at the same point in each year when you're looking at your transfer windows, um, when you're looking at your retain lists, when you're looking at various different issues that come up on a sort of a on a time to time at that set point during the season. But from my perspective, a lot of it is being reactive and firefighting. Um, in the main, I'm dealing with football club clients, which is really because of my background I worked at for professional football clubs uh, prior to qualification and I've spent some time on secondments at clubs um, since qualification and it's it's being reactive to those clubs. Um, it's, it's not a standard, standard job as a lawyer where maybe not so much these days but office hours go out the window if somebody needs something on a Saturday evening because there's been an issue in a match um, or a club decides they're going to, for instance, get rid of their manager. Uh, they don't want to wait till nine o'clock on a Monday morning to, to speak to someone. So a lot of it is being available, being reactive. And again, it's, it's across the board, but most of my work is relating to player issues, whether those are employment issues. That stretches across sort of coaching staff um, and senior staff as well. Uh, transfer issues, but also issues between clubs. As as Ben mentioned, um, more and more sort of threatened litigation between clubs. It's not just a case where where a club sort of reluctantly accepts something. We, we're seeing sort of legal letters flying around, and I think that probably is just symptomatic of society itself. We are in a much more litigious society than we were even just a few years ago. And with the money that there is in football, um, clubs obviously want to be um, be as strong as possible, whether it's a case, as was mentioned, about fielding your, your strongest possible team. But there, there are so many issues. And again, there's, there's no, no real typical, um, typical working week as such. It's, it's being reactive to, to what's going on in the game. And you've all mentioned something about the cyclical nature. Um, I don't know how it is for all of you, but um, someone asked me the other day, we're, we're recording this at the end of May, just after the Premier League season has finished, and someone asked me if I'm now winding down because the season finished. I don't know how it is for you guys, because but for me, it seems to be now is a time when everything is kicking off at the end of the season. Is that Peter? I was going to say um, lots of friends and colleagues, actually, annoyingly colleagues, asked this same question and assumed that the answer is that when the season's finished, that that is when you are quietest. And it's actually, for me, the opposite. When the season is finished and you're in the close season, you are crazily busy. And actually the quieter times are the kind of 
November and April bits when your other colleagues are much busier dealing with the kind of match by match, um, you know, setting up the stadium, making sure the marketing is right, dealing with the partners, all of those things. Rebecca and I at that stage can kind of take our foot off the gas a bit. Okay, well, let, let's move on to um, how you got to where you are. You're all doing fascinating jobs in football, but um, you all had to start somewhere. What was your, what was your career path, Peter? Uh, relatively unusual, I think. So I was an academy player um, for many years um, at a different club, a rival club to Fulham, actually. Um, Can you say who? Uh, Chelsea. Um, and left there when I was, well, left there when I was 18 um, and decided that I didn't want to do anything to do with sport or football, did my law degree, and then ended up at a US firm or an international firm because I wanted to travel, um, and then ended up doing no traveling because as soon as I got there, they had acquired a, a sports law practice and as soon as I sort of spent a week or so in that team, I decided that this is what I wanted to do. And so I kind of based my, the trajectory of my career on that team. Um, and it just so happened that among the many football clubs that that team worked for, Fulham was one. And when um, the Khans acquired uh, Fulham in 2013, they asked if I would like to go in as their first in-house counsel. The rest is history. And I assume there's no regrets because you're, you're still there. Still there. Um, no regrets at all, actually. I absolutely love my job. Um, it's crazy, as everyone has alluded to. There is no week that is the same. Some um, incredible issues that you have to deal with. Not all legal issues, I have to say. Um, but yeah, great. Love it. And Liz, um, tell us how you started. I think I'm somewhat different to your to your typical sports lawyer in that um, I my undergraduate degree was in sports science. I was a football fan. I'm still a football fan. Um, I went to a school that didn't have a sixth form. There was no talk of law or anything like that. Wasn't really much talk of A-levels. So, um, so I just did an undergraduate degree in an area that I was interested in. And I was very fortunate um, when I finished that, I saw a job advertised in the Evening Standard working for the FA. Um, I went to the FA, I worked for them for six years, working mainly in their player registrations team, but also working on the fixtures and competitions there. And from that, I went to Fulham, um, spent, spent a great time there at Fulham, and then had the opportunity to move down to Southampton as club secretary. Um, again, had a great spell at Southampton, great affinity to them, living on the south coast, fantastic, loved it there. Uh, sadly, that came in to an end in 2008 when the role of club secretary was rather strangely made redundant after a change of ownership. Um, I, I didn't contest it, but at that point I decided, um, having already completed a sports law master's degree, to go and uh, start studying part-time. So. I studied law part-time whilst working. Um, I went to West Ham and then went on to Sunderland and then um, qualified and went into private practice. So uh, a bit of a circuitous route to get there, but I think it gives me, um, it gives me the understanding of having, having worked in club football at a number of different clubs and uh, a bit of a long-winded way to 
get to qualification, but uh, yeah, qualified at 39. So uh, a bit later than most, but uh, many years experience before that directly working for clubs. Fantastic. And I think I have to say this for um, some of our followers. I think you now live closer to one of the best cities in the world as a result of your uh, ability to to, to work long distance across football, um, is that right? Well, one, one of the near best, Newcastle. Well, well, I think I think the uh, population of Sunderland would uh, would probably be uh, up in arms <laughs> at that comment. I, I live uh, I live on the coast between Sunderland and South Shields, so 20, 25 minutes or so away from uh, Newcastle. But I've had the uh, joy of being at Wembley with uh, with Sunderland on Saturday. Yes, so, uh, that, was, that was fantastic a great day. place to live. Fantastic part of the country and. Yeah, I'm very lucky to have flexible working arrangements whereby I continue to work at home. Um, I mean, I guess that's one of the big differences between in-house and private practice. You and I can do a lot of work from home, but I, I assume all of you guys have had to spend most of the time or still have to spend most of the time at, at the stadium or the training ground. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lloyd, um, your, what was your career trajectory? Well, I actually worked at the same firm as Peter, so um, in some respects we started off the same way. I think um, taking a step back before that, I did law at university, um, and I didn't really know where it was going to lead me. I was kind of, it, in some respects, just doing a law degree because I thought it was the right thing to do. It suited my kind of the way I was as a, as a student at school. Um, and I remember being given uh, a sort of prospectus, and it, had, it was a summary of um, lots of different law firms and the areas of law that they did. Uh, it was called Target Law. I don't know if it still exists, but I remember seeing in a few of these um, sort of summaries, a few firms did sports law. And it's something, you know, I was a keen footballer myself and someone who loved sport. I thought, okay, I would never even thought that that'd be something that you could do as a lawyer. So um, ended up applying and getting um, to the same firm that Peter was at. Um, we we actually shared an office together for many years, the best times of my career. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it was, to be honest, it was great because we both qualified into the sports, the wider sports department. But I think we both probably at that time had a bit more of a focus on sort of primarily contentious regulatory and sort of transfer matters. Um, I think the other thing that we did do, I think which is important to say as well, is that we, we weren't both immediately just sports lawyers. We did a lot of our stuff on that, but we both did also a lot of work in um, sort of litigation in advertising, but also did a lot of work for WPP. Um, which actually was great because I think it's for people who are starting out in the sports law world or the sports world more generally, um, it is just another area to which the law applies. And it's a sexy area to which the law applies, but it's still just an area to which the law applies. So I think seeing how other sophisticated businesses do things and learning and applying that experience is really important. But um, getting slightly sort of distracted, I did, I did that work for a long time. I did lots of work for lots of good clients, um, clubs, players, intermediaries, managers, governing bodies. Um, and several years into that, I was acting for Meza Ozil on the renegotiation of his contract with Arsenal, at which point a job came up at Arsenal. And I'd been working closely with the lawyers at Arsenal, thought they were a really good bunch and thought I'd go for it. So I worked at Arsenal for the best part of four years, at which point I kind of expanded the areas in which I worked did a bit more commercial work and, and looked after that area a bit more as well um, until uh, the job came up at, at Brighton and I've been at Brighton now for about seven months um, and I felt like it was the right time to take that move and go in as general counsel and I felt like it was a great club to join and I felt that my career and the club's trajectory were going in the sort of same direction 
and it was something I was really excited about and I'm yeah, so delighted that I've made the move. It's a great club to be at and uh, we had a wonderful end to the season. So, um, yeah, long may it continue. Yeah. Um, and Ben, you, I think by a weird quirk of fate, uh, Lloyd was at the same firm as Peter, which we should just say is Squire Patton Boggs, otherwise um, Stephen won't be very happy. And um, Liz was at the same firm as Ben. I'm not sure if you were at the same firm at the same time. No, no. But tell uh, us about your, your yeah, background. Yeah, so it's, God, mine. Well, here we go. Um, you said three to five minutes, so I'll, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll try and keep it brief. Um, being at a, a sort of uh, comprehensive school on the outskirts of Hull, I watched a film called A Few Good Men and just decided that I wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted to be the Tom Cruise-style guy shouting at Jack Nicholson that I wanted the truth. So you bowl into a careers officer you see for 10 minutes of your life in Hull and you say, I want to be a lawyer. They say, you're doing a law degree. So I said, of course. Um, two years into a law degree, and please everyone take this the right way, I realized I was probably intellectually challenged um, to go to the criminal bar, which was my preferred choice. And walking around here today, I remember some mini pupillages. So I watched another film called Sliding Doors, if you all remember it. And, and, and Gwyneth Paltrow was just going to all these PR parties in London. I thought, looks bloody good to me. So uh, I applied to do some PR work experience. And through that, I met a guy called Tony Stevens, who some of you remember was Beckham, Owen Shearer, Redknapp. He was one of the first sort of leading football agents. So I thought, well, that sounds rather good. So Tony gave me a bit of an internship straight out of uni. I went to Euro 2000 with him. And in March, I think it was, 2001, football agents became regulated for the first time. And if you remember, Nick, if you were a lawyer, you were exempt from the Swiss franc bond and various tests and the like. So Tony said, go back to law school, get qualified and, and come back when, you, you, you know, you, you're ready. So uh, I went back from, you know, running around working for sort of sports firms, uh, um, agencies in London to back doing property law and all that comes with the LPC. Um, then went to Walker Morris and had five great years there. They had a big insolvency team, did a lot of football club buying and selling. But on a weekend, I was picking up my football player clients. So finally made it back to what was Wasserman then. It had become left SFX and Wasserman. Had six brilliant years there representing Premier League players and living every boy's Jerry Maguire style dream. But ultimately, the football agency world just really was bit by bit struggling to sit so well with me. Um, I think everyone around the table knows there are some dark arts um, and you have to behave in a certain way. Probably nowadays, the money was so big. You know, when Tony first started, the Premier League first started, there was 18, 20 registered agents. I think when the intermediary regulations all changed, there was potentially 1,700 intermediaries registered. So, so I just thought, thought I miss being part of a team. We've all worked in private practice or, or club teams where you win together, you lose together. So I was approached by David Flitcroft, the then Barnsley manager, said our CEO is retiring. He's 71. We want a young, hungry, football-y style CEO. So I went to Barnsley in 2013 um, at 33. Uh, Jason Scotland, our striker, was actually older than me, so that was fairly amusing. Um, three years at Barnsley, um, bought into a bit of a data model, which was, uh, which was interesting. Um, then got approached to go to Leeds. Um, yeah, went and had a year with Massimo Cellino. Uh, Massimo had calmed down by then. Um, he ultimately sold uh, the, the business to Andrea Radrazani, who we all sort of heard of. 
Andrea, quite rightly, and it will happen in my world as a CEO now, uh, wanted his own his own chief exec. So it was hello, Ben, and goodbye. So um, so I went out to work for Maccabi Tel Aviv in Israel for two and a half years, which was a wonderful experience. And then again, um, I got a call. Simon Sadler was buying Blackpool. He wanted his own chief exec. Would you be interested in leaving the beaches of Tel Aviv for the beaches of Blackpool? And I said, of course. <laughs> um, then I had to go home and sell it to my family. Um, that we're leaving um, the bright lights of Tel Aviv because it's a wonderful liberal sort of city. And it's been two and a half years back in Blackpool. So just finished nine seasons as a football chief exec. Yeah, it's, um, it's, been, it's, been, a, it's been a great nine years. But uh, yeah, a few good men, Jerry Maguire, sliding doors and a bit of money ball and we're sat here today. Fantastic. Rebecca, how about you? When I think back to being a child, mine was also from a film which i was like a bit embarrassed about for a long period of time but now i'm like you know what i'm proud of it so it was actually legally blonde but now, <laughs> but now when i look back i'm like you know what powerful woman absolutely smashing life so i'm i think i'm pleased to say that now um went to anyways went to university did a degree in law i have to say that the law degree does not really reflect the job so that was um, slightly different. And then um, my career has actually followed a little bit of Liz's as well, in that I went to Sunderland, got a paralegal job position, which then turned into an in-house training contract with, so slightly reversed to the standard training contract where you do a secondment in a um, company or at a football club and did a secondment in a um, local law firm and then qualified moved from um, the right side of the water to, down <laughs> to um, Southampton, was there for a little bit, and then um, the bright lights of London and Fulham couldn't keep me away. Well, your paths have really crossed, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it strikes me, listening to all of you, actually, I hadn't realised this until listening to you. I, I used to think that... Um, uh, compared to some of my colleagues in chambers, I I might not have come from the most conventional background for a, a barrister, you know, going to Oxbridge and doing your A-level, which I didn't even do A-levels and so on, came to it quite late, bit of a football fan and ended up um, by accident, really, in sports law because I hadn't, I hadn't known about it when I qualified. But I think we all have similar backgrounds in that way that all of you listening to you um, don't perhaps come from the conventional background for a lawyer and have really liked football and enjoyed it and, and hopefully ended up in your dream job. So well done. Um, so anyway, the last question we're going to move on to are what are the big legal issues that we think are going to arise in football in the next period, in the next season or next two or three years? Uh, what do we think is going to be keeping us busy? Ben, let's start with you. I thought a little bit about this. I, I think, look, the fan-led review, or what I will refer to as probably over the next few minutes, government, I think is, is going to be a big challenge for all of us. Um, obviously, I'm surrounded by uh, the Premier League. And uh, having been at a talk only last Monday, listening to, to Steve Parrish uh, speak uh, uh, on Crystal Palace's behalf, clearly uh, what Tracy Crouch thinks should happen um, will need government intervention because redistribution of wealth and 
various changes around um, how football is governed with an independent regulator. I, I don't think the Premier League or 14 clubs of the Premier League uh, outside the, the bigger six are going to rush to vote for that. So that's going to need government legislation. And it was very interesting. I had the pleasure of going uh, and meeting Tracy with our owner about 10 days ago. I don't think that review has applied much thought to the detail of how that works. So it's going to be, we think football needs to improve. You guys go away and agree how it's going to improve. Or we might bring an independent regulator in. Their suggestion is the independent regulator comes from more of an FCA type background. We all have come across people who think they can change football and they know football and they can do football better. Yet various things around football still continue to be the same. So I think the, the whole final-ed review and the government intervening, allegedly a white paper, um, probably more the back end of this year, I think now, will be really interesting. And, and for all of us involved in football, that, that is going to be, I think, months and years worth of debate and um, more debate and more time spent in Blackstone Chambers, and we'll see where that, that, that sort of gets to. As I alluded to earlier as well, I think the championship um, has become incredibly litigious now. And I think, you know, surrounded by Fulham, for example, and you, you understand maybe Fulham's owner doesn't want to indebt the club but and doesn't maybe want so much regulation around what he can invest in his football club. The same as, you know, we were sat having lunch with maybe a club like Stoke in the championship again, Whereas someone like us probably would like a little bit more regulation. Um, our owner has seen our football club nearly go out of existence. Um, so I think around the championship table, there is the ones that want to live within financial fair play rules, the PNS rules that we we you know we all pour over, and I think there's those that don't. And and that, given that now after the Derby situation, stadiums getting sold, not getting sold, and People are always trying to find ways around things. I think that will implode soon because the clubs that want to spend more will be now getting towards the top of their losses, uh, the 39 million over the three years. So, so that challenge is coming. I think they're the two big ones for me. I think it's government and I think around championship, it's around the PNS rules because, you know, big 30, 40, 50 million losses are, are, are getting sort of. Um, recorded. I, I also think um, continuing challenges around social media and protecting the players and, and and some of that will continue to be something that we'll we'll all debate. You know, not that long ago we all had a blackout on social media to try and get, you know, some regulation and enforcement in, in, in that. So that was another one. But for me, the fan-led review, all that's coming down the line with that, if it does come down the line, because who knows, change of government, things might change. And I think at championship level, we've got uh, some some continued, if not heightened, friction around who wants to spend what and how. Mm. Liz, what, what do you think are going to be the big issues? I think I probably should have uh, talked to Ben beforehand and uh, <laughs> consolidated notes with him, but I, I was also going to uh, to mention the, the fan-led review. And uh, obviously, I, I think it goes without saying that all of us involved with football see that there are sort of various conflicts um, and, and and things that are happening within the game that really shouldn't shouldn't have happened. We look at the clubs like Barry Macclesfield and I think to anybody who is a football fan, those, those things, you just cannot imagine that happening to your own club. And obviously so much with that is suggestion is up in the air. 
Um, what will the situation be if there's a change of government? Those sort of things. But for me, looking at those conflicts and how those can be resolved, and and I think it comes back to me to the sort of the structure of the FA, the difficulties there. And one of the things we were talking about earlier was was looking at um, the the membership of some of the panels that hear the disputes that we deal with at the FA. I've worked with Nick on panels before where we, we look at people who are deemed to be independent, who sit on those panels, and you have to query whether those so-called independent panel members are independent when you look at the, the rules that are there in the FA handbook for the composition of those committees the word independent is it's so narrow it's looking at council members it's looking at people who have a sort of direct involvement with with the appellants with the respondents but we we all see um commissions that are convened with people who are on a panel that ultimately is appointed by the fa so i think a lot of it comes back down into regulation of the game and trying to avoid conflicts and trying to trying to see what can be done, if anything, working within the structures that we've got at the moment or potentially with, with a new regulator. And what, one of the issues I think that was briefly mentioned, um, I attended a, a sports law conference on Monday, Nick was also there, and one of the things that was mentioned, and I'm not sure how much this has been thought about in that FANLEB review, is obviously the restrictions that FIFA have in their articles about government and sort of political intervention in sport, and how how does that work when when you've got a government review saying that they're they're going to try and sort of enforce by statute an independent regulator? And there was discussion at the time about well maybe it will regulate some things and not others, but. Again, it seems to me to be a sort of a fundamental point that's missing from that is how does that sit to avoid potential sanctions from having having had some sort of government intervention in, in the sport? Yes. And uh, at that conference, I, I chaired a panel with Tracy Crouch MP, and she was quite adamant that there will be legislation within the next three years, she believes, that will bring in a statutory independent football regulator. Um, that it's got political consensus, it's supported by the Tories, but it's cross-party. So even if you had an election, she seems quite adamant. Do, do you think it's likely? Do you think that is going to happen? I just, things in football move so slowly, um, as, as Ben mentioned. It's a bit like looking at reform of the FA, where you've got to be looking at people who are involved in the sort of the council membership there to actually, it's like Turkey's voting for Christmas, really, that sort of, Things move so so slowly in the game, and whilst I think it is in everybody's best interest to have regulation that, that are there and people who are enforcing that and doing their best to prevent the sort of situations we've seen with financial mismanagement of clubs and difficulties with owners of clubs, those sort of things, whether or not it happens. I know Tracy Crouch said this is something that that would survive any change of leadership of, of the country. But I don't know whether whether football embraces that that type of need for change when actually quite often it's, uh, oh, we're doing okay ourselves, aren't we really? Do we really need this? Mm-hmm. Ben, you want to no, come well, back in I, on I'm that? just very excited to hear what the, the Premier League and my Premier League colleagues yes. are going to say about it all. And, and if, if they do believe it is a challenge. I, 
I just think football probably does need an independent regulator. You know, like I alluded to earlier, we're in, we could have been in litigation with two teams this year. Uh, both um, are clubs where the, they're, they're, you know, the EFL board of directors. So how can... One... Yeah, just, just to explain that, the, yeah. the EFL board of directors includes representatives of the clubs that might sue you. It, it, exactly. So I think for, for, for us, I think independent regulation should come. I think what's been clearly apparent in, in the last 10 plus years is the Premier League call a lot of the shots in the English pyramid. And I think the FA has sort of just not paled into insignificance, but, you know, during all of COVID, it was the Premier League trying to speak up. It was Rick Parry on behalf of the EFL that the FA was missing. But, um, yeah, I, I think the, the whole government piece is, is really interesting. I'm, I'm really keen to see what Peter and Lloyd and the... Well, let's, let's hear them. Lloyd, on that and on other issues you think are going to... Uh, keep us busy over the next few years. Yeah, I mean, I, the fan-led review is obviously the big news at the moment. And, you know, I won't repeat what you guys have said. It's, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that and how quickly. Um, I think there are a lot of questions there unanswered from clubs' perspectives. Um, but I don't think the kind of the clarity has yet been forthcoming on what that's going to look like. So I think at the moment it's a watching brief. And then I think there'll be consultations and clubs' views will be heard at those point. Um, but I think, you know, taking a slightly different direction, but still kind of government related and also to pick up a point that Ben made earlier on about clubs finances. I think another area that will be interesting in the coming years are some changes which are coming down through government in terms of affecting sponsorship and commercial opportunities for clubs. We've heard of the government's review on the gambling um, legislation which is ongoing, as we understand, and which could have big impacts on clubs who make a lot of revenues through sponsorship in um, shirt sponsorship or sleeve sponsorship or stadium sponsorship in, in betting. Um, last year, the Queen's speech, there was uh, the suggestion that there would be some significant bans on HFSS um, items, high fat, salt, sugar, food things, so that clubs with sponsorship opportunities might find those curtailed as well because there was going to be a suggestion of a, um, a 9 p.m. curfew on TV for sponsorship of those things, a complete online ban for those things. So all of these things are potentially eating into revenue streams for clubs, um, again, sort of government-led. Um, I suppose also we've seen issues, um, regulatory scrutiny on some of the kind of crypto-led deals that certain clubs have been doing. Um, and I think that these are things will be challenges that clubs are facing, particularly when they are struggling post-COVID with income to deal with potentially restrictions that are incoming on those areas where clubs are making their money um, or supporting their sort of football operations. Uh, I think also it'll be interesting to see what happens with the sort of proposed new FIFA agents regulations as well, how that will impact the game and the involvement of agents within the game. I suspect there will be many agents challenges to those based on what we've heard in the press about the plans there. Um, but I think that as well as the, you know, the sort of the bigger picture is that there's a lot of moving parts at the moment and football clubs keep on doing the same old things, playing football, kicking that bit of leather about, but the stuff around the outside is all changing. And I think the clubs have got to be agile and able to deal with change, which is not always so easy. Um, as you say that, you know, football does change slowly in some respects, but in other respects it changes very quickly. So I think those will be things to, to keep an eye on for the next couple of years. Peter? Um, I had not, um, I decided not to comment on the fan-led review because I thought, I was, as I was last, I would not talk about it. But 
since Ben was interested in my opinion, I am personally skeptical that government is the answer. I'm not sure that government intervention in football is either welcome um, or that it would um, either find from within or um, from outside football um, a team that would really make a difference, frankly. I'm also skeptical that it would happen. It's the first time I'd heard the cross-party support, but I'm, I'm not convinced that a change of government, even uh, or even the same government, may not um, produce a different answer at some point down the line. I'll, I'm yet to be convinced that it's going to happen. Um, our challenge, um, personally from, from a club perspective, remains as it was when probably you and I last spoke um, substantively, which is that even though we are <coughs> owned by a very wealthy individual, our focus is on retaining the best talent that we produce. We spend millions of pounds every year on an academy, um, and we do that in order to produce players for our first team. <coughs> but the reason we can do that is um, because um, those players are valuable to us when we sell them, or they're valuable to us because they play in the first team and make a difference to our team. And <coughs> so the challenge for us has been and remains to keep those young players, that young talent, um, and if we can't keep them, uh, making sure that we are compensated properly for them. At the moment, I think um, the challenge that we face is that there is not um, adequate compensation when you lose those players. Um, when you do, and it's often to bigger clubs, I won't name them, but it's often to bigger clubs, and you are left with kind of three choices for a for, uh, depending on how old they are or what, what happens, you either get fixed tariff compensation under the youth development rules, you get um, put before the Professional Football Compensation Committee, um, which is the type of panel that, that Liz was talking about where it doesn't change very often, the rules are archaic, they produce quite low conservative awards, or they go abroad and you're left with the FIFA style of compensation where um, you get even less. And in circumstances where you are spending 8, 10 million or 50, 60 million, depending on what club you are, to maintain category one status, 100 grand from FIFA or 2 million from the PFCC or up to whatever it is, 500 grand, a million pounds on the fixed tariff, it's not enough. And there are two main reasons why it's not enough. Um, one is kind of existential for our academy, um, but the other is, is, is sort of closer to home. And they are that unless you have proper compensation, then you will just um, create a cycle where this it just doesn't end. It will encourage the more predatory clubs to continue taking the best talent from clubs like ours. And the more existential threat is that if this keeps on happening without proper compensation, then chairmen like ours will not want to invest eight to ten million pounds in the academy every year. And that is something that the Premier League and the Football League, both of whom are stakeholders in this um, debate, need to take um, some notice of. You know, that they are big promoters, rightly so, of youth development, but they run the risk of kind of shifting the focus away from youth development unless there is proper compensation. It's really interesting. Um, 
I think, Lloyd, you may have touched on it, but nobody's really spoken much about NFTs, which seems to be the sexy phrase at the moment. Is that because it's all really a flash in the pan or is that going to be anybody a, a, a big issue in football? I think um, it's the big word at the moment. And I think it's difficult to say whether it's going to be here in 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. I'm not a tech person. And I think it's difficult for me to really comment on that. But I think the interesting part of our job is that when you're doing a sponsorship arrangement or a commercial agreement as lawyers, you have to very quickly get up to speed with these things and the legal issues that they involve, which is part of the joy of doing it. Um, and it's an interesting area. Um, from my perspective, the, you know, the jury's still out. We'll see. But um, the point I made earlier on is that a lot of these deals that people, clubs are doing involve an element of crypto, some sort, which... The regulatory framework is a little bit unclear in the country and I suspect at some point will be clarified or there'll be more scrutiny, um, at which point we'll see how the clubs fare in terms of how they comply with those regulations. But um, I think that'll be a challenge for clubs to comply with because ultimately these clubs are not sophisticated financial um, providers of financial services. So we'll see where that goes. You're not selling um, fan tokens for people to vote for what song? They should play when the Blackpool team come out yet, no, are you, no, Not yet. We, we've got quite a commercial journey to go on from what we inherited after five years of fan boycotts and sponsor boycotts and the Not A Penny More campaign. So, no, we're a, we're a country mile probably behind Brighton and Fulham um, in, uh, in monetizing that, that space. But I, but I think what we've all seen now, though, is, is, is how important the digital space is and how, you know, one thing that we have done is we'll, we'll launch an app in the next couple of weeks, we've gone over to single sign-on, which for a modest, you know, championship club the size of us is quite an investment, but we're all now taking our content from our phone. We're all now realizing that that's the way, that's how the consumer's buying. Um, single basket might just be a challenge beyond us, but as, as lawyers, although we, it's not our day job, but as an executive, it's, it is for, for me, that, that whole digital space, you know, from when the guys probably started looking at, commercial sponsorship agreements what they look like five years ago or 10 years ago so i think nfts nick that's what everyone's talking about um and you know they will start to appear as some things because the brands will want them that the brands lawyers the brands advertisers the brands marketeers will will have it on their radar one thing i'd be interested in because like, when i was at maccabi we were obviously a member of the eca um how have you and fulham as well how are the the, the sort of other Premier League clubs thinking about the challenge of the direction of travel of the sort of Champions League and that becoming more and more difficult for, for, for Premier League clubs to hit. So I remember Paul Barber was quite vocal around that ECA space because that's all been voted in now. It's going to be quite difficult, isn't it, for, for Premier League clubs to get there. And I think it's sort of come in a bit by stealth that, that sort of all but... And now it's all going on sort of coefficients. So I just wondered... As bigger clubs round those type of ECA tables, if you had any thoughts on that. Thanks for that. Um, no, it's just something, you know, I'm sat here with Nick's, Nick's asking us about challenges, <laughs> and it was something that I, I left behind because Maccabi was a big club in Israel, but, you know... It, it, I think, per, I mean, I, 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 not speaking on behalf of Fulham here, but personally, I, I think you're right. Um, there, was a, there was uproar about the, um, whatever it's called, Project Big Picture, mm. And rightly so. But what seems to have happened is that in order to stave off projects, big picture, UEFA seems to have agreed with 
their most important clubs that they will be guaranteed a seat at the table um, at the expense of smaller clubs, um, you know, by stealth. And, and that seems wrong, not least because some of those clubs um, 20 years ago would have been in League Two. You know, that um, doesn't seem right that you would fix the competition now when some clubs are successful, when um, 20 years ago they were, yeah, they were struggling in, in League Two or League One or whatever it, whatever it was. Um, for clubs like us, we do want to get there, but we have to overcome the challenge of being relegated every year after we're promoted. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I think you know, we're on a journey. You know, finishing this season in ninth place was amazing for us. Um, and you know, we take it bit by bit steadily. We've got great ownership who have got you know, the plans in place to sort of move forward. And um, I think at this stage, not speaking again on behalf of Brighton, but just any, any structure which kind of crystallises the status quo ahead of time doesn't to me necessarily feel like it's a, a healthy approach to things. Uh, you can see perhaps why um, you know, there is some desire at UEFA level to keep those clubs on side, given what happened a couple of years ago when it, it was a year ago. Um, but I think they have to be very careful with, with how that looks because there are many clubs who want to reach that level and want to do it the right way. Um, so I think that there needs to be thought for those people, those clubs as well. Well, look, we could go on talking for hours, but we, we can't in this podcast. So thank you all very much. That was absolutely fascinating. I was saying to Liz and Ben um, while we were just setting up that one of the big um, differences for me during COVID was not missing the hearings, which we often had by Zoom, but missing those bits in between when you go into a little breakout room and talk to your clients, because that's actually when you have the most interesting conversations and you learn what your clients are up to, what they're doing, how they got to where they got to and, and what are the big issues they're facing in the future. And so I'm really grateful and I'm sure all our listeners will be very grateful for you sharing that insight with us all. So thank you. You've been listening to the Sports Law Podcast with me, Nick DiMarco of Blackstone Chambers. For more information, you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn and of course, visit our website at www.blackstonechambers.com. In the next episode, I'll be continuing this theme, but from another angle, discussing the history and development of sports law with the lawyer who has been described as the godfather of sports law, Michael Beloff QC, who has just published his memoirs, MJB QC, including a fascinating chapter charting his role in the development of sports law. So please do subscribe and join us next time for episode two in conversation with the Godfather.